of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 50, March 2022. The Power of Voice. A conversation with Denise Woods. Hi again, Paul Meyer here. It's not too late to be part of my new Zoom masterclasses in 2022. The Art of Voiceover and Secrets of Great Shakespeare Performance have just finished, but three more classes begin in just a few days, so act quickly if you're interested. Dialects of the British Isles and Ireland begins March 5th, Acting in Foreign Language Accents, March 6th, and Working with Accent Modification Clients, March 9th. Each class consists of four weekly Zoom sessions, 90 minutes each. A complimentary copy of my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen is included. For all the details, look for Masterclasses under the Coaching tab on the menu bar at palmire.com. I hope to have the pleasure of your company. Now it's time for Guess That Accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. You know, you got the sun, you got the... We went camping, cycling, uh, bathing in waterfalls, uh, snorkeling as well with the very colorful fish. So, yeah, Brazil is amazing. Um, I got to learn the language as well over there a little bit. If you guessed Canada, well done. If you narrowed it down to Quebec, I'm very impressed. It was Ideas Quebec 8, contributed in 2010 by my former student, Julia Lenarden. If you're listening, Julia, I hope you're doing great things, and thanks again for this fine recording. The subject, Quebec 8, was raised in Saint-Damien, the south shore across from Quebec City. To listen to the whole sample, go to dialectsarchive.com, choose the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar, then drill down to North America, Canada, and then Quebec. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? When I first got you, my um, computer broke down, like Skype and everything, it was gone, do you know what I mean? So, and then my phone wasn't working, so I was like, oh my God, I need to use a pay phone. And I was go- I went, I was just like going around asking people, where's a pay phone? And they were like, a what? Pay phone? I was like, yeah, like a public phone. Get the answer next time. My guest today is Denise Woods, one of our most successful movie dialect coaches. She was recently the dialect coach for The Harder They Fall, one of the very few westerns whose principal cast members are all black. Its characters are loosely based on real cowboys, lawmen and outlaws of the 19th century American West. Professor Woods is also the author of The Power of Voice. Denise, I loved the book, just loved it. Thanks for sending me. Part memoir, part client casebook, and part uh, how-to training manual for actors and speakers of, of all stripes. Congratulations. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I say it's part memoir. It's part anecdotal. Yeah. And um, prescriptive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing book. I think everyone should own it. So I re- highly recommend it. It's out in both paperback and hardcover now. It's an audiobook as well. I then walk you through the exercises. I was wondering about, you know, it's, it's hard to write about voice and speech. And, uh, you know, I've never successfully done it just in text. So I'm so very pleased that it's available as an audiobook. Wonderful. I was looking for accompanying sound files, just as I do in my books, but you've solved the problem. Great. So I was struck in the preface, uh, a little bit of your life story. I, I would say, hey, 
we could be twins. We both grew up poor, uh, government housing, you in the New York projects, me in a, in a poor side of town in a provincial British town. But we had very nurturing mothers who instilled a love of education and, and the arts and help us to transcend our humble circumstances and enabling us to inhabit various worlds and straddle various worlds, as you put it, and examining the accents and the dialects of those worlds. Tell us a little bit about, about your humble beginnings. Well, I started in New York on the Lower East Side of New York, which is now trendy and very gentrified. But uh, when I was growing up, it was very family-oriented. It was very diverse. It was the late 50s, early 60s. I'd say what changed the landscape of my community was the Vietnam War. A lot of the young men came back from Vietnam strung out on drugs unfortunately. And it was the first time I can remember seeing someone, as I told my mom when I was about, oh, I mean, nine years old, mom, why is he sleeping, standing up? She explained to me what that was. But with that said, it was a hotbed for the arts. And um, the Lower East Side was filled with the Negro Ensemble Company, the Third Street Music School, the Henry Street Settlement, and the Black Arts Movement started on the Lower East Side. And so we were a part of that because my mother was in the education system. She went on in the 70s to, to graduate from college and become an administrator. But she started off as a school aide and went to college and worked her way up from, as you said, from humble beginnings. But she in addition to having this wonderful connection to the Black church, the Black Baptist church, she had a thing for the arts at a very young age. And she kept my sister and I involved 24-7. So I don't necessarily think it was her goal to keep us from the streets, per se. She just knew that education and the arts were our ticket out. How soon did you know that you were interested in in languages, in the language arts side of things? Was it being exposed to the, the multiplicity of accents in New York City? How did you drift into it? It's true for me, I, you know, when, I, when we moved to London and I, I was surrounded by all of the sounds of the world converging on that little city, big city, I should say. You know, that, that confirmed my, my love of playing with accents and dialects. How about you? It wasn't the region per se, or people from different regions. It was the characters in my church, the African-American characters in my church that really sort of spanned uh, generations. In the 1960s, there was a man in my church, a man and a woman in my church. And everybody knew that they were enslaved people hmm. as children, yes. And so it always fascinated me to talk to, um, the woman was more lucid than the man, but to talk to them and really just sort of go back in history. I think it was more, more than geography. It was the historical context that I enjoyed putting these voices in. Region as well, but more history. When people tell stories, I just go there. I just see it. And the voices that go along with that. Like like Sarah Jones, perhaps, and yes, yes, and uh, Anna Devere Smith, and so forth. Exactly, I see the the entire transformation, the physical transformation, the vocal transformation 
of these incredible people. Yeah. Let's jump to, uh, I guess this is a good number of years later, but what we call now the British invasion with all those (laughs) British actors coming to the States to do films. And you've been heavily involved in that, right? I have. I have to say they've kept me quite employed. The British actors, the Australian actors, it's quite a conversation, one that I avoided for years and then just sort of jumped into the conversation. When I had this epiphany about being an artist and I think we should have the artistic freedom to choose who we want or who we see in the role for a part. And I believe that should transcend where you're from. And I I say I would like if we could open it up to go beyond the English-speaking countries so that if, in fact, aesthetically, there is a Greek actor that has the aesthetic that you're looking for or an Italian actor, you know, open up the possibilities for a global inclusion in the conversation. Now, clearly, there are a couple of stipulations. If it's a family, then of course, they all have to sound like they're from a a particular region. But I think the social commentary and the social conversation that's being had right now is interesting. But I think for me, the bottom line is, I, I think a director should maintain that sense of autonomy when it comes to casting. Talk about your experience as dialect coach on The Harder They Fall. Because of COVID, (laughs) it was unlike any job that I had ever done. First of all, the tone that was set on set by the director, James Samuels, was just phenomenal. No one had ever been on a set where music was playing constantly. There was an aesthetic that was freeing to the creative process, as opposed to it sort of being stifling sometimes, which is what it can be, because everybody is intense. It's not stifling purposely. And this was just the opposite. Everyone was at their A-game, but in a relaxed uniform It was an ensemble. It was a supportive environment. And I have to say, just to see the number of African-American actors in that genre, walking around, slinging guns and horse riding, and and the African-American female presence was so liberating. I think that's what made everybody just so proud and rise to to something because we knew we had a great script. We, we, we knew there was great writing. We knew we had phenomenal actors, but there was something deeper that we felt a commitment to of a story that had sort of never been seen. Wonderful tales and narratives that we all knew as Black folks from around the country. We all knew these people and tales of these people, but we knew we had a responsibility to make the general public aware of who these people are. And your work with the accent for Idris Elba, how did that go? Idris had decided because he was a nomad, he decided that he wanted to sound like a hodgepodge, a myriad of different sounds so so that you couldn't really pinpoint where this man is from because 
a lot of these people were talking, it's post reconstruction. It was beautiful because these actors had the gift of determining whether they were from an enslaved environment previously or if their ancestors had never been enslaved. He chose that his ancestors were never enslaved, but because of the trauma that he experienced in his lifetime, it made him very distrustful of people and places and things. And because of that, he traveled quite a bit. And so that was fun to put a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so what I did was I, I, I just gave him samples to choose from. It was a smorgasbord. All of these wonderful dialects that he picked and chose what he ultimately wanted to be. Well, you supported his work amazingly. Paul, I'm so appreciative of the fact that you said supported his work. Because with an actor like Idris, that's what you do is you support. You, you, you come in with resources. He tells you what he's thinking and you come in with resources and what you do is support that. So I appreciate you saying support. Yeah, you're not prescribing thou shalt sound like this. Exactly. Even though there is an aspect to our work as dialect coaches, uh, as sometimes that we are called dialect designers in the theatre. So there's, there can be that, that level of creativity. Absolutely. Do you, have, do you have a particular project that you've worked on where you felt that you were the designer? Because I know I, I have. I'm sure we all have. Well, with, uh, with Malachi, Malachi set in, in Hawaii, the story mm-hmm. of Father Damien, who... Mm-hmm. Uh, who came and and sacrificed his life to support the lepers who were exiled to Molokai. And uh, David Wenham, who played Father Damien as a Flemish speaker, really needed very prescriptive work and looked to me for that. So, you know, that was a design. I mean, obviously I supported his, ultimately his, it's his work and I support it, but it did start fairly specifically as a design. That's wonderful. I totally agree that there's a difference between designing and supporting. The design projects are absolutely phenomenal and fun, and um, but but so are the support projects. So absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And every project has its different demands. Every actor likes to work in a different way. Some are hopelessly lost going in and need everything from you, and and some like Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady. I was talking to the coach of that on another podcast, and you know that was. Just stand in the wings and, and applaud, you know, as, yes. as Meryl did the whole thing for herself. But, you know, there's something to standing in the wings and applauding. This is the reason I know that that's valuable, very valuable, is I can remember teaching on faculty at Juilliard and coming back in the evening to listen in rehearsal to, you know, the actors as they approached opening night. Just the mere fact that I was there reminded them, oh, that's right, I'm not breathing. And, and, and so that's valuable. That's extremely valuable to just sort of be in the wings. Uh, and I found that to be the case on set because with, with some actors, they just need to see me. And some actors don't wanna see me at all. 
Right. <laughs> so so it, it's, it, it's quite interesting. So, and some actors will not work with the text that they're going to speak with the dialogue uh, and, and save that entirely for the rehearsal process. And some want to work specifically on the lines they get. So it's being able, being able to adapt to the needs and the tastes of the artist you're working with. is. I think that's our gift, Paul, to be perfectly frank, the ability to be malleable to change depending on the need of the actor. When you have to work with, say, a British or an Australian actor who has to do African-American vernacular English, uh, what are some of the sounds that you list? Well, see that, you know, African-American vernacular English is, you know, is, is, an, is, is I, I, I don't understand what that is because, it all depends on where the person comes from. As with any group, you know, if a Black person from Chicago sounds different than a Black person from New Jersey. And I say Black because, you know, is it African-American with Caribbean roots? You know, their parents are from the Caribbean, but they were born in Brooklyn. All of these things are very specific. Louisiana, the migration path, during the Great Migration, the African-American Great Migration of the early to mid 19th century, actually late 19th century into the early 20th century. And it depended on, you know, the railroad. It depended on where the train path was going so that people from Mississippi have a tendency to, to have migrated toward Chicago and people from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina migrated toward Philly and New York and Boston. And so that to me is quite interesting. And we start there. And, and, and then I talk about, you know, the way we cook our food is different depending on where you're from. Are your people from South Carolina or are they from Louisiana? You know, we eat the same similar things, but the preparation is different. And that holds true for the way African-Americans speak. It really does depend on their roots and where they're from. Is it South Carolina with Geechee Gullah roots? And, you know, you know, it's like a gumbo. So you want to be able to really be specific as opposed sure, to sure. As say, okay, this is how Black people sound in America. <laughs> sure. Obviously, it's a blanket term, um, but I was going to hold your feet to the fire and say, what of those multiplicity of sounds might British or Australian actors that you work with, actors of colour from Britain or Australia or other parts of the world, what, what sounds do they particularly have difficulty with, I wonder? A lot of the African-American tradition hails from the South. And we do mother, father, sister, brother. So we don't have a hard R depending, let's say Georgia, we don't have a hard R. Or if we're from New York, we say mother, father, sister, brother. We don't have a hard R there. Easier for the British actor who says mother, mother, father. That's what I'm getting to, Paul. It really is much easier. Not, not necessarily for the Australian actor. That's a different beast. But the British dialect lends itself more toward the African-American who hails from Southern roots because we have similar diphthong, you know, patterns we don't say. My, we say ma, 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 ma. 
Mm-hmm. You know, my call, 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 call. You know, we make a, a pure vowel out of a diphthong, which is what you guys do. So um, it lends itself more easily, more readily. You know, Denise, I've noticed that um, British actors uh, in American roles do better, in my experience, if they are Southern roles. Oh, yes. For this very reason. And perhaps there's something of the musicality of the British and the musicality of the South that that, that they have something in common. I'm sure there's some history of the uh, the British support for the South that, that has something to do with that. Oh, oh, completely, completely. And... You know, the, the, clearly the, the British influence centuries ago, which, you know, was held on to by white aristocracy in the South that really sort of harkens back to their British or, you know, not necessarily the Scotch-Irish, but Scotch-Irish, you know, um, of, of, the, of the lower class, but of the upper class descendants of the British folks who came over to the new world, um, they, they held on to quite a bit of those sounds. Yeah. So you told me that the Brits have an easier time with mother, brother, sister, father. Um, mm-hmm. What do they have difficulty with? Mother, father, sister, brother, which is the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So in fact, if, if and, and you can be black, white, but you've got a little bit more R, even if you're African-American, if you're, say, from Detroit, Chicago, the Midwest, there's a little bit more of an R. There's that lovely thing on the nurse lexical set. So it can be nurse, nice, nice, nice. Yes, yes. It's the very same thing. It's that R. And particularly the vowels of R here, the vowels stir and mother, that's the, the strong vowel of R, stir. And the diphthongs of R here, there, or car. That's very difficult to get the retroflexion of the tongue back to do that er, mm. after you've made a vowel sound like ear. Let's switch to the idea. I know you and I both do accent modification with non-actors who need it. What's the hardest aspect of American English for your non-English speakers, your non-L1 speakers for you to teach? Do you have particular sounds that you find difficult? I'll share mine if you share yours. Okay. Well, let's start with, I have since taken the term modification, reduction mm-hmm. out of my vocabulary because I think to switch around the paradigm and the approach to I'm adding, I'm not reducing anything. I'm not mm-hmm. eliminating anything. Uh, I'm not getting rid of anything. I am adding this American dialect. Yeah, we could call it accent training, but and there's a lot of disagreement. We haven't settled down on a term. Accent modification is what the clients seem to ask for. And so I wish we could settle on a term that pleased everyone. I know. I just find that in my experience, because by the time people have come to me, just everyday people, they have been beaten down. So in the corporate world, they've been marginalized. And so their self-esteem is down the tubes by the time they get to me about the way they sound. Sure. And so for me, it's about empowering and finding ways to meet them where they are so that they take a different take on what this work is about. So I find that the, just the mere image of them adding something to who they already are works better than them feeling the need to take away something. Absolutely. From sure. I sometimes talk about making their accent a, an asset and not a liability. I was working with 
a Middle Eastern client once years ago, and there was a lot riding on the work we were doing. And I, there was simply no time. He was he was up. He was facing a jury trial. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, there was simply no time to think of of modifying, reducing, or even adding an accent. But what I could do was to make his Middle Eastern sounds an asset. You know, evocative of those who gave us algebra, who preserved the classics, that intensely educated mm-hmm. his, history that the Middle East has, and mm-hmm. and that was the self. I helped him present to the jury in that trial. That's exactly along the same line of operation that I take. Being the best you you can possibly be. I contend that we do not all look alike. Why should we all sound alike? So I think it's incumbent upon us to sort of redirect the narrative of what an American sounds like or what a British person sounds like. They do come to us in quite acute distress, feeling that the way they sound is a liability. It is is holding them back, and they're looking for the answer in the pronunciation of their words. There you go. I start with rhythm first. Me too. You too, Paul? I used to do it all the other way around, you know, list, least. The individual vowels that they had difficulty with, you know, burn, barn, born. But I will say, in terms of vowels, I like to... Let them understand the basic, the difference between a front vowel, a mid vowel, and a back vowel. Mm-hmm. Nobody teaches, nobody tells them that it's the, the, the placement a more closed vowel or more open vowel. Mm-hmm. I, I like to start there. You can see it as a, a map in your mouth where this sound exists, the origin of the sound. Or the fact that you are saying a pure vowel and this sound is really a diphthong. It's really mm-hmm. a combination of two sounds or maybe three sounds, you know, just to introduce those concepts to people is mind boggling. People go, no one ever taught me this. Right. Yeah. My my Indian clients especially have difficulty with, and I'll share one of my hard ones, and that's fourth quarter report. And, you know, where for many Indian speakers, it's fourth quarter report, which gets them in a lot of trouble. I'm ordering my fourth quarter report. It can be misunderstood so very easily. So that's yeah. one of the, that's one of the hard ones for my Indian clients who want to be yes. more easily understood. But let's talk about rhythm now. Mm-hmm. I, I found that moving someone from a syllable timed language to a, a stressed timed rhythm, as as English is, is is the hard thing. They, you know, I can I couldn't agree more. And that's why I start there now. Yeah, same here. Rhythm, in my opinion, is everything because you can have all the right sounds, the placements of the sounds, but if the rhythm is off, it's a dead giveaway. It's like playing a Duke Ellington song, you know, without that wonderful syncopation that he does. It's not Duke Ellington. (laughs) And, And the idea that English speakers slur their way, they murder consonants, uh, they, 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 they brutalize vowels to such an extent that on their own, those, those words would be un- misunderstandable. But they, they might come from a culture or, or a language that believes in every word being exactly right. And so and now I'm not changing yeah. my pronunciation at all. I'm not changing my pronunciation, but I'm giving the same value to the duration of every word. And it suddenly sounds very foreign, doesn't it? And when you introduce the concept of a schwa, a weak vowel, they almost 
say, you mean I can do that? Yeah. That's okay? Yeah. You mean that's, that's not slang? I go, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They will often give us animal. It's uh -huh. an animal with two schwas. So right. it feels lazy. It feels disrespectful to them, but getting them to make, getting them on board with that idea that we English are not as precise as everyone thinks the Brits are, and, and the Americans are just as lazy. It's a laid-back version. It's a wonderful laid-back version. I, I liken it to Americans, we break rules of speech, which is what jazz is. Jazz, you're breaking rules, and, and you're starting a whole new genre, a whole new art music form, you know? And I think the way Americans speak is beautiful in that we we break a lot of rules. So the concept of it and being Brits lazy. and Brits do too. I know. You know, it's so interesting because of course we think that you all speak the Queen's English and so not true. <laughs> but we're, I love we're, it. We're even lazier than Americans. Brits are even lazier than Americans on the unstressed word strings. You know, yeah. If if I had a sentence it's like I can't believe that you would just really just give up your job and walk away. I really can't believe that you would give up your job and walk away. You know, and I'm just slurring myself. But an American trying to do a British accent will often come to grief by saying, I can't believe that you would really just give up your job and walk away. You know, being very precise on all of those words. Yeah. So understanding that uh, British English is, is lazy is <laughs> tough. So here's a, here's a topic. There seems to be a pressure that a lot of performers are feeling to not perform other people's accents, that this is cultural appropriation or mockery. And, and I wondered how you felt about coaching and performing audiobooks, for example. To me, the joy of a single narrator giving voice to scores of diverse characters in a single story is, is incomparable. Mm -hmm. But um, there are a lot of people who go into cultural representation with dialect with a great deal of trepidation these days, the um, you know the landscape, the cultural landscape has changed. What what do you think? And I and I had in mind plays where the playwright has mandated double or triple casting with characters deliberately of different nationalities, genders, right. or ethnicities, for that very reason that the there's a kind of resonance that goes when you when you get a, a, an actor doing all of those things. Well, uh, I, and I was, I was thinking of one-person shows like Sarah Jones or Anna Devere Smith. Are you conscious of this pressure to tread lightly when we are doing accents? I think it's, it, it's a good time for us to become aware. There's an awareness now of the disparity in just the hiring practices. Let's just start there so that, you know, we're leveling the playing field so that, that more people come up to bat, get seen. It's about representation and being seen. And clearly at the base of this is what I said initially, that I think an artist, a creator in the creative process should decide how they go in terms of casting because it's ultimately their project and they have the vision for it. They are the visionary. But I think the fact that we're having this conversation now 
is so necessary. And if we go overboard, I think it's a good thing because there's certain times when we are going overboard. It's like, okay, really, really folks, are we going to have a hundred different actors voice? And and the answer to that is yes, until we can level the playing field. What about audio books where the tradition is to have a single narrator voice everything? I've always been a part of audio books. I've always been a part of the cast because the company that I've worked with, and this was in the eighties, they always hired, and if there were African-American narration to be done, they would hire African-Americans to, to narrate the narration within the book. It all depends on how the producers see the book, because if in fact, if it's just narration and you're going to read the book, then you're reading the book. And some, some producers say, no, I want more than just reading. I want acting. I want actors to really act these or the voices to really replicate the depth of these characters. I think it's a good conversation to be having, Paul, right about now. I think it's an excellent conversation to be had. You know, we're contemporaries. I'm not ashamed to say I am 65 years old. I'll be 75 um, in a week. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) And, you know, we're old school. I think we need to, you know, be able to sit back and let the this next generation of actors determine what the next what it's going to look like down the road. I, I, I would hate to see the death, even if it were temporary, of that wonderful tradition that I cut my teeth on of a single narrator reading the narration and coloring each character so that we know who's speaking. You know, giving a little bit of character design to the voices of the characters they quote. And it sounds as if you're okay with letting that tradition die at least temporarily. I am. And I'm I'm okay with it not just being temporary. I just think it's it's imperative that we we allow space and create room for more diversity and more voices being voiced by the people who sound like these characters. Would you extend that to nonfiction where you're simply quoting? what Martin Luther King said, or quoting what Obama said. You're narrating the the biography of those characters, and do we need to bring in an actor to quote Martin Luther King? Or Paul, it really all depends on how it flows and how, if it sticks out like a sore thumb, I am a stickler for the aesthetic. If I'm just being PC, then clearly, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it makes no sense. But if it adds to the aesthetic to hear someone all of a sudden sound the the voice of Dr. King or Barack Obama, if it adds to the aesthetic, then why not? And clearly it's very subjective. You know, it's art. It's an art form. And um, I, I say go with it. I say play with it. I love the ability to play with tradition and essentially muck it up. You know, have fun with it. Take it, take it to another level. Do something different. You know, it's it's like cubism. You know, it's it's like it's Picasso putting an ear over here. People go, what is he doing? And it's just it's it, he he took it from African art. You know, he took it from the indigenous art of Africa and in the Americas. But you know, change is good. Change, I welcome it. Yes, I welcome it. As long as it it flows with the aesthetic, do it. 
try it. The reason, believe it or not, it's this conversation that made me leave Juilliard's faculty and go to CalArts because Juilliard was just the tradition. I went to Juilliard in the 70s, taught there in the 90s, and they were doing the same plays the same way, you know, the same directors. And I went to CalArts, California Institute of the Arts, and they were just experimenting and trying different forms and allowing kids to express themselves in non-traditional ways. And I subscribe to that in a huge way. That was a very happy move for you, clearly. Oh, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. And not just because I, I left Juilliard and went to Cal Arts, but I came to California. And the movie thing, the rest is history. <laughs> Absolutely. And what a, his and what a history. Thanks. Before I let you go, I wanted to... Um have you talk about what you call voice print. I thought that was something that jumped out of the book at me. You talk about each person having a voice print. I love that. Even the sound of the phrase excited me. So tell us in closing, what do you think about that? I liken it to a fingerprint. There are no two fingerprints that are the same. There are no two voices that are the same. It's your unique individual way of expressing yourself. I don't know how I came to this notion, but I, I see voice. I don't just hear it and feel it. I see voices. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I see. That sounds voices. almost like a movie title. <laughs> I hello, see voices. Hello. I see voices. <laughs> Not I hear voice. I see them. And every time I see a voice, I see an image with the voice. No two images are the same. That's a lovely closing sentiment. Thanks for joining me, Denise. Paul, this was lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Denise Woods. To learn more about her, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, at Dialect Paul. I'm taking a solo flight next month. No guest. Mystery topic. Join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>